Today on episode number 342 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, I have the pleasure of speaking with Amy Sproles and Matt Johnson about place-based learning. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. And welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. As part of my ongoing series, highlighting different faculty throughout the California State University, I have the pleasure today of speaking with Matthew Johnson, PhD, Professor of Wildlife, and Amy Sproles, PhD, Associate Professor of Biological Sciences, who are both recognized for their transformative work in creating supportive and welcoming environments for traditionally underrepresented students through place-based learning communities. Johnson and Sproles organized a collaborative network of faculty across HSU to deliver cohesive and linked curriculum within each learning community, from chemistry to Native American studies to communication. With the goal of implementing high-impact practices to support the success of first-year STEM students, Johnson and Sproles developed several learning communities for students in the College of Natural Resources and Sciences and divided students into cohorts. The Clamoth Connection serves students majoring in wildlife, forestry, and environmental science. Stars to Rocks serves students majoring in physics and astronomy, chemistry, and geology. Rising Tides serves students majoring in marine biology and oceanography. Among Giants serves students majoring in biology, botany, and zoology. And Representing Realities serves students majoring in mathematics and computer science. Amy and Matt, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thanks for having us. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks, Bonnie. I want to start out with a question that I already kind of know isn't really a question, but will you work with me on this? (laughs) Absolutely. All right. So before you tell us the definition of what place-based learning is, I want to start with an an initial question. Did you first in your teaching do stuff and then find out that the stuff you were doing had a name for it called place-based learning? Or did you first find out about place-based learning and what some other people we're doing with it and then kind of try to adopt it into your own teaching. Or I suppose there's actually a third option, which could be maybe you coined the term place-based learning. I don't know. So is it A, B, C, or D, other other answer that I'm not thinking of? Well, um, we didn't coin the term ourselves, that's for sure. Um, I think, you know, for us being up here at Humboldt State University in, in Northwestern California, it's such a unique place. It's such an inspiring place. And for a lot of our students, it's very different than the place they came from to come to HSU. So I think the idea of using and drawing on the power of place-based learning kind of arose from where we are. And, you know, Amy and I have lived in this place for a while and um, have grown to love it. And I think we saw that as a, a really powerful opportunity to connect students to the place and to the curriculum that they're engaged in. 
Amy, it sounds like it was option D, possibly that there was another answer, which is maybe that you were inspired first by the place that you live and teach in. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, I think we were inspired both by the place that we live and teach in and the students that we teach. Because as Matt described, Humboldt State is really in a unique and relatively isolated location. And most of the students that come here are actually from a place that's about 800 miles away, right? So the majority of our demographic are students that arrive from Southern California and metropolitan areas. So there are areas that are physically distant and really culturally distant. And so the original idea was inspired in part by wanting to welcome students to their new home, their new place, and really introduce it to them through our curriculum. And then as we began this work and started partnering with other people from our place, we became much more aware and knowledgeable about what place-based meeting means to other people and other groups. And so it's really been a wonderful journey that's um, built community around not just where we are, but the people who live here, the people who have always lived here, and how they interact with the world around them. You don't need to give us necessarily a textbook definition, but could you give us your definition of place-based learning? Well, uh, yeah, to me, place-based learning really rests on the power of immersing students and faculty and staff, for that matter, in the place and recognizing the heritage, the culture, the landscape, the geography, the plants, the animals, the rocks, all those things and how those things interact with each other to illustrate to students how so many disciplines are interconnected. You know, the world is a challenging place. We've got social challenges, environmental challenges, economic challenges, and higher uh, education is pretty good at at isolating those. But we all know that um, solving those complex challenges requires all the disciplines working together. And by immersing the curriculum and embedding the curriculum and anchoring the curriculum around a place, it gives you the opportunity to explore how all those dimensions of that place um, interact with each other. As you were just saying that you're, I mean, you're just igniting my imagination around this. Amy, would you talk, would you just give us an example of this interdisciplinary aspect of place-based learning? Because I I know there are some aspects of place-based learning that's like, let's take our STEM class and, and put it in the desert, but we're not also then bringing in other disciplines. Could, could you give us an example of an interdisciplinary example of place-based learning for you? Yeah, absolutely. I think I'll go back to one of the very first experiences that we developed for our students. And so the programming here at HSU really started, gosh, I think it's five years ago when we spent a full year before then um, really planning And as Matt said, you know, it's not simply about the place, it's bringing in different disciplines. And it's really about involving the people in the conversation and the people of the place. And so it's certainly those of us from HSU when we developed a team of faculty, staff, and even students that came together from different majors and different departments. And so that ranged anywhere from wildlife and biology, which are our two home departments. We included chemistry, math, we included communications. We included art, theater and art. And then we reached out to the scientists and cultural experts of the tribal communities of our place as well. And so when our first cohort arrived, we had developed a three-day experience that really focused on the environmental and social justice challenges of our local tribal communities, their epistemologies, the way in which they explore and study their place, 
how it relates to the culture, their culture, and the culture of their ancestors, and then how our disciplines are able to complement and work together to help solve these really complex and challenging concerns. When this community came together of students, what was it that they signed up for in this sense? Did I sign up for a science class because I'm a science major and I signed up for a comm class because I'm a comm major and then I get to see how these disciplines intersect? Or did I sign up for a class and I would draw on lots of strengths from my own background and lots of knowledge that I have? How, How general is my sign up for this class as a student? Well, the the program is a cohort-based learning community. Um, And so that means all the students come in together and we designed our learning community for incoming first-year students who have chosen to major in a STEM discipline. And that learning community, those students are in a cohort and they take mostly the same classes together. So when they sign up for a learning community and the very first place-based learning community that we started was called the Klamath Connection, they took a bunch of classes together and those classes all touched on various aspects of the Klamath River, the Klamath ecosystem, the people of the Klamath, the water of the Klamath, the algae in the Klamath, the rocks in the Klamath, you know, those sorts of things. And so um, that's one of the powerful synergistic benefits of a learning community is the students begin to see how those courses relate to each other. And also a little bit unanticipated for us is the faculty were beginning to talk to each other a lot more too and beginning to recognize, oh, that's what they're doing in communications. Oh, all my students are taking communications this semester. Wonderful. How can we combine? And so it was those sort of opportunities that really propelled the curriculum. Um, and so what they're signing up for is this cohort-based learning community. Oh, so it's so much bigger than what I was initially thinking. So this is just three days of the actual on-site in that particular example, but this is part of a much broader vision and a a much broader idea that that's sustained over many, many years of their education, it sounds like. Yeah, it's a first year program. So I think you're oh. referring to the first few days of yeah. the fall semester, we have what we call a summer immersion. So the mm-hmm. students would arrive a few days before the rest of the first year students arrive and they would have this immersive experience in the Klamath Connection. It was literally immersive in that they would go up to the Klamath River, get their feet wet, see what the river is like. But then they would be in this cohort of classes that they would take together in the fall, and then also some of the same classes together in the spring semester. So I want to hear about this. I know you have some statistical measures around the impact, but I'd I'd love to just start from more of a qualitative standpoint. What have you heard from students after the fact? I mean, just more anecdotally, what stories have you heard from some students after they're beyond that first year experience as to the power of it for the rest of their education? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. And it's interesting because we have lots of anecdotes and, you know, as Matt described, it's a first year program. And so we spend a lot of time with the students the first three days, and then they all cohort together in the same classes that first semester. They have their own freshman year experience. And these are all high impact practices that they're traveling through together. And so the way in which they are related in our program allows not only for students to travel together through various dimensions of their first year, but it also allows for the faculty to engage in the students in various settings. And then the faculty end up building a community too. So we had lots of great anecdotes from the students who were really excited about different dimensions of the programming during the summer, but also as they were able to see the different connections that were in place between their courses, between the summer experience and the summer experience, 
and then other social events that occurred throughout the year, it was great to see their community grow and then to also be part of that community in the first year. As they moved on in their classes, um, I mean, really they kind of cohort together and that I think that continuity continued for the class as they entered upper division courses, we would hear from upper division faculty members. Um, and then as we saw them later on, sometimes they'd come back around as research students or in our upper division classes. And so it was just nice to see that, have that familiarity and be able to build upon that relationship and really bookend the entire experience. I don't know if that answered your question. Though, no, Matt, no, no, it absolutely did. So, so now that we have explored some of the stories, I know this is not something that you only gathered stories on. So you're interested in actually measuring the impact. And you mentioned high impact practices. So place-based learning is among, I don't know, lots of types of deeply researched high impact practices where there's a lot of scholarship of teaching and learning around it. And you have a publication that I'll link to in the show notes from the Journal of Innovative Higher Education. I'll just read the title quickly and then we can talk through some of the effects that you were able to measure. So it's titled Effects of a Place-Based Learning Community on Belonging, Persistence, and Equity Gaps for First-Year STEM Students. So what can you generally tell us that you were able to see happened in terms of a sense of belonging, persistence, and equity gaps for these first-year students? Well, we tried to you know, measure as much as we could in terms of the impact that this program might be having on students. So we have a really great Office of Institutional Effectiveness here on campus. That's the Office of Institutional Research, and they were very collaborative with us. So we were able to do surveys of students and focus groups. And then, of course, you know, very standard institutional measures like persistence, which is the percentage of students that come back after the first year to their second year, as well as grade acquisition, GPA and all those things. So what we were really hypothesizing and hoping that this program would do is increase um, students' sense of belonging. And we hope that that then foster a sense of community that might translate into greater academic achievement that might be measured in GPA and course acquisition and retention or persistence at the university. So we were able to measure all those things. And in addition to hoping that we would see increases in all those things, the whole design of this, and one of the reasons that learning communities are designated high impact practices in higher education, is that's been found in other situations, and we again found it here, is that these sorts of learning communities that can build community can narrow those equity gaps. So can shrink the difference between grade acquisition or retention or whatever your measure is between underrepresented students or first-generation students or low-income students and students who don't have those uh, presentations. So we were able to document both of those effects. That is an increase in a lot of those different measurements, as well as a narrowing of equity gaps between them. And I know that we, none of us, I shouldn't say none of us, in many of our disciplines, we have to be careful about attributing causation to things. And generally what we often get are causation, especially in the social sciences. <laughs> but so I, I don't want to ask you a question that you can't really answer, but do you have a hypothesis around what is it that most helped reduce those equity gaps? And let me just give you one quick example so you kind of know what's in my brain. I've had a past guest on Eddie Watson, and Eddie Watson did a study about these open educational resources. And so these are essential. I don't want to oversimplify it. I apologize to listeners who are experts in this, but free textbooks, right? So a lot of people would assume 
the savings of the free textbook is what made the biggest difference. But what his research found that actually was actually the number one biggest difference is everybody's starting the beginning of the term in the same place. Whereas in other circumstances, because they didn't have all the cash they needed to buy that textbook, they might not have gotten it until week three or four. So it was more about the time delay for academic success than it actually was the money. Does that make sense? So I'm kind of wondering about this equity gap because it's so exciting for me to hear another example of that being measured. But but what, what kinds of things do you think you can attribute it to based on your research? Well, there are a couple different things. And again, our research is also began in the scholarship. So we certainly aren't the first person to explore or the first team to explore many of these ideas and apply them. There is a couple things that motivated us. One, I think, was this idea that it is a community. And so one would hope that if you bring new students to campus and engage them with faculty, with upperclassmen, with staff around the discipline that they came to university to study, then you immediately welcome them, you include them, and you ground them with others that can support them as they move through. And so that was one piece that we hoped would help close equity gaps, um, especially for students from areas or backgrounds that haven't had as much experience with hands-on learning in the discipline that they're excited about. The other piece is also in the higher education literature that if you can really motivate students by engaging them in curricular and co-curricular activities that really highlight the relationships between STEM, which is really about science, technology, math, which isn't really, it doesn't obviously link to the humanities, right, to the human experience. And so if you can create activities and experiments and show that linkage so that students can really see how their personal and cultural values are impacted by and could benefit from the STEM curriculum, then you can really improve motivation um, and engagement and hopefully welcome people from all places to really excel. I know there are totally a bazillion examples you could give me, but would each one of you just give me one example of a surprising way, surprising from a student's perspective that you're able to and your colleagues are able to show them of this connection between science, technology, engineering, and math, and what some of them would consider their own lives. I realize that that's, <laughs> that's an oversimplification, but like social issues and, and things that they care about, you know, those, those connections. Would, would each of you just share an example that comes to mind, even though I know there's tons of examples out there? Yeah, so I guess there's two different levels to this, right? So the welcoming students to HSU and grounding them in the social cultural issues of our place. And he's mentioned Klamath Connection. The Klamath River is the major geographic feature that really collects us all together. All of us being both the campus community and our tribal partners, it is home to four different tribal nations. And we collaborated with the scientists and cultural experts of those tribes to help introduce the students to the system and issues that water quality issues have on the people of that place. And so for the last 12 years or so, every late summer, there's been a major toxic bloom of microcystis algae that really dramatically impedes not just the health of the river, 
but the ceremonial practices of the tribal people of the place. And so by introducing the students to the cultural impacts, the scientific impacts, the environmental impacts, and then demonstrating how chemistry, math, botany can all help better describe and understand and contribute to a solution was really the first way in which we tried to highlight the linkage between the people of our place and the basic science courses that the students would be engaging in in their first semester. This year, we did that same experiment that we've done, you know, multiple years, and it had to be different this year because normally that experiment happens with files and, you know, going to a lab and then uh, having those files sit in the greenhouse for a while to grow algae. But this year we had, because of COVID and everything being virtual, we had to transfer that whole experience into a kit that we could send to the students. And so it was really, I just finished grading some of the students' responses to that. And it was really rewarding and enlightening to read those because, you know, several students talked about, I couldn't come to Humboldt this semester, but a little bit of Humboldt came to me in these vials because we would send them vials that literally had some Klamath River water in them. And they would do some experiments to see if the addition of nutrients accelerated the growth of the algae inside those vials. And then, as Amy's describing, you know, working with our tribal collaborators and working with botany professors and math instructors, the students see how this one experiment, which seems very, maybe very simple at first, connects to all these other disciplines. And then a lot of students have this uh, aha moment where they are seeing that, oh, I thought maybe this was just going to be like an experiment I did in high school. But now that I see that it's real, it matters to people that live on the river and have lived on this river since time immemorial, we're doing this experiment to understand this algae and how it might be affecting these people. So that's part of the, the relevance of science to society that um, both the literature suggests is very powerful to help close equity gaps, but we've certainly experienced and seen that ourselves as well. The last thing I would say is the other exciting piece is that it's an extremely relevant question in our community right now because the toxic algal blooms are a direct result of major hydroelectric dams that have been up for relicensing. And so there's a major initiative by all our local communities to try and remove the dams. And so it's also students see how the power of science can also affect policy and move forward to catalyze major changes for um, restoration. So that's exciting too. I don't want to be projecting things that aren't there, but I can't help myself because you're talking about water quality. And I, you know, instantly we have a lot of, of listeners from all around the world. So not everyone will get this reference. So I'll explain it. We have a community in the United States called Flint, Michigan, and it is kind of the poster child. I, I think it's the poster child. Would you agree? That's the poster child for what poor water quality can do. It's at least the most publicized one for what poor water quality can do, my mind goes to that and all the devastation there. And there's legal elements to it and political elements to it. And But but if I were a student in your class, yes, I, I would definitely see the opportunities to deepen my understanding of another culture from mine, or perhaps it is my culture because I'm from there, but you said most of your students are not. But also so many of our students do come from areas where water quality would be an issue. And so I don't want to, again, put something that's not there, but it just seems like the next natural extension to you igniting my curiosity is, oh, so that's how this works here. But how would it work 
in the place where I'm from. And so do you have those kinds of conversations? Are they able to make those connections? And do they get all, they want to go home and measure their own water quality and, and things like that? Yeah, exactly. I mean, what you're describing is environmental injustice. And that is the process by which, you know, environmental contamination or environmental problems land disproportionately on people of color or marginalized communities. Um, and so this example that the students explore with the blue-green algae in the Klamath River um, is an example of that. And you are exactly right. Students, they recognize this process and this reality of environmental injustice, and many of them have lived it in their own lives. Um, and so part of the place-based learning is to not just learn about this place, but to learn about this place as a way to learn about larger emergent patterns or emergent processes or emergent questions that apply to anywhere in the world. Um, so uh, on the heels of doing some of the local place-based learning, we also then ask students to reflect on how some of these same relationships and complications and solutions might be operating in their own communities. I just love, I've, I've been so fortunate to be able to speak now to so many superb faculty members across the California State University system. And I just love how the theme just carries across around these service learning opportunities in so many different disciplines that I've spoke with, the idea of we do it together with the community. And I'm thinking about the group of researchers who had the students learn about circuits through building these solar kits, and then they take the solar kits to the indigenous communities, for example, but they're not like, here, here's a present, you know, <laughs> but they're actually working together to learn how to build them. And I just, I just love that that value really carries across so much from what I've been able to see of the California State University system. Yeah, that, I mean, that's right. I mean, you know, in our case, the idea of cohorted based learning communities has been around for decades. You know, it's established high impact practice. We chose to put the place space you know, signature on the learning communities that, that we have built here at HSU. And place-based learning has also been around for a while, mostly in the environmental education, but it's also been criticized for not appropriately acknowledging the indigeneity of a place, the indigenous people of a place. And so for us, I think what we've learned over the years, you know, working with our colleagues in Native American studies is you cannot talk about the place without talking about the indigenous people that have been there since time immemorial. That's pretty conspicuous here in Humboldt County because we're a rural place with um, a number of important tribes that have been here since time immemorial and still have very active practices and communities going on now. But really, um, you know, I think one of the lessons that the students learn in working with our Native American Studies collaborators, you know, they ask the students to go to this website and put in their hometown and learn what the tribe is that in, there is in, in their hometown. And so no matter where you are in North America, there is an indigenous community there that has been there for tens of thousands of years or longer. Um, and so that's, I think that's also one of the emergent lessons that students receive from both the summer immersion as well as the full cohorted experience over the first year. And we certainly see that, you know, in surveys and focus groups with the students. Um, a lot of them reflect on, boy, I learned about, you know, Native Americans in fourth grade in my California, whatever, curriculum but I never learned this. And so it's really powerful for them to hear a more honest truth about the history of settler colonialism and how it's had affected um, the communities here and elsewhere. Mm. Well, I want to ask one more question before we get to the recommendations segment. And it's hard sometimes when you work at a place or you're in a situation where you don't have a first year cohort program. 
you don't have a place-based program already implemented. You know, it feels sometimes a little bit isolating. And so I I wonder what ideas you might have for how do we shrink this down? And I realize that I'm going to kind of, it's sort of oversimplifying, but I like to think about it doesn't have to be this giant thing that involves, you know, all these people and, and money even, you know, to budget it and all this stuff. What are some of the small things someone might do just to begin to experiment on a, the smallest unit that you can think of around place-based learning? Well, there's a couple uh, ways to think about that. The smallest unit I think you could think of as um, being something that's place-based or the smallest possible learning community. You know, so an individual instructor can certainly introduce place-based curriculum and pedagogy into her or his class. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a wildlife biologist. And so um, we do a lot of, in my classes, we do a lot of work locally, you know, with field work, in many cases, collaborating with the city of Arcata, in our case, up here at Humboldt State. And, you know, anytime you're grounding the work in the community and out in the field, in my case, with um, students studying wildlife, it can really help galvanize the concepts in their own mind. And then, you know, in terms of the smallest possible learning community, really, I mean, the academic literature defines as long as you've got two classes that have some linked content across them and some shared students between them, that's enough for a learning community because the students in that experience will be seeing the academic connections between those two classes. And they'll also have build a community of people who are enrolled in those two courses together. Um, and there's benefits even for a learning community that's as small as that. And by two classes, you mean I'm in a cohort and together as a cohort, we took two different classes, or you mean two different classes that are coming together to a larger group to learn together? Uh, well, I guess it could be either way, but most conventionally, um, two courses where the same students are taking two different courses with two different instructors. So rather than thinking about, I have to invent this whole cohort model and transform all of the first year experience, it could be, yeah. I, I pair up either with myself, because if I teach two different classes that happen to be in that first year map or curriculum progress for students, or I get a colleague and we figure out some way to do that together. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's really cool stories. I mean, we've had the benefit of, you know, going to some of these learning community institutes and training uh, opportunities where we've heard stories from other faculty all over the country that have done neat learning communities. And sometimes it's, you know, a music class and a chemistry class, or, you know, sometimes the combinations seem like, oh, wow, how did you pull that off? But they could be really powerful because that's how, um, you know, students can start to see some connections across discipline. I was even thinking just in my own teaching, because I'm not in STEM, but how do you take it into a non-STEM? I'm going to give you an example that I don't think is place-based learning, but I still want to mention it and see if you agree. So I, I love getting students outside of the classroom. And so I would often, in the years of my teaching, we would go head down together. We're, we're right by a nature preserve and it's beautiful. And, and there, there are a lot of ecological things, but that's not why we're there. <laughs> we partner up and we listen to a podcast episode about whatever the topic is. And it's about 15 or 20 minutes or something like that. So it might be looking at discrimination in the workplace and we walk out. There's actually two different ways you can go. So pair up with someone and decide if you want the harder on your legs walk that's going to involve more hills, or if you want to go with me where we're going to walk on pretty flat land. 
And then we come back and we discuss it on the way back. To me, that's not place-based learning. It's in a place and it's learning, but it's not place-based learning because I'm not incorporating that environment other than just its beauty and magnificence and it's something different. But the second example would be a really seemingly simple one. And that is whenever I have guest speakers, I'll joke with them and be like, hey, could I invite myself to your company? And oh, by the way, my 20 students or whatever. But anytime I can get them in the actual context that that guest speaker might be speaking about, you know, that's a business person. And so we're going to go learn from that business person in the context that they're going to be telling us about, if that makes any sense. And to me, that second one might qualify as place-based learning. And again, I don't, I know we don't need a rubric or anything, but what are your thoughts on that shrinking it down? Yeah, I think that, I think both are really excellent beginnings. And I think that as each of you stated earlier, I think there's ways to just bring in a small piece to kind of round out the play space, right? So remembering that place isn't just location, but also the involvement of people and the people that were from there and the history of the activities that have occurred there. So when you take your class out for the ecological walk, just knowing, you know, as Matt said earlier, there's a map you can look on and identify any place in the United States and what the indigenous, what the history of the indigenous community is, whose land it was, if there are still community members there. And just knowing the history of what occurred on that land, if it's a wildlife reserve now, what is the history? What happened there before? And honor that and how it moves forward. Mm. And then in terms of the business practice, yeah, I think similarly, what's not, you know, this is the business, this is what they're doing, but how is it impacting the community, right? And why are they doing these things? And what are ways that others can help have a conversation or maybe guide that product or the business practices to um, be most beneficial to all, right? I think that's another way to think about it. Um, as long as, you know, it's, it's honoring the history of a place, the relevance to the people who live there now, currently, and finding different perspectives to understand it and make things better. Uh, yeah. We'll actually transition over now to the recommendation segment. And I'm going to give my recommendation first. And we're recording this a lot in advance of when it's actually going to air. So I'm not going to make a lot of mentions of what's happening right now. Mm. But all to say that I think probably collectively people listening would understand Sometimes we just need a little escape. So I just needed a little comedic escape. And I watched a comedian. I'd heard his name before and I'd heard him on podcasts, but I don't know a ton about him. His name is Mike Berbiglia. And he did a, it's an hour and a half. They called it a one man show, but it's basically like a comedy routine and it's called The New One. And I really enjoyed it because he talks about his feelings about he didn't want to have children originally. And I won't ruin the surprise prizes, but you can kind of maybe predict what might happen when someone's so sure that they don't want to have kids. I don't want to give too much away, but some of the time he talks a little bit about them wanting to have children and then not being, oh, I just ruined the surprise. My gosh, I am really not doing well at this, but uh, I, I couldn't tell this part of the story without saying that they did eventually want to have kids and then weren't able to. And just as someone who's gone through some infertility in my own life, it is really fun to hear from someone else who's experienced a similar challenge to you because there really is some funny stuff that happens in the middle of awful <laughs> tragedy like that. Like, And, and you just want to cling to like, that was a horrible, horrible season. But my goodness, was that funny? And then just to have somebody else where you're like, oh, my gosh, I get that so much. And so it was it was just really, really fun. It totally took me away from everything that was going on, I'd just be completely absorbed in this guy's story. And he's so, 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 so very funny. So I would really recommend that to anyone who wants kind of a 
a little uh, escape. And it's funny, but it also has such deep meaning. And I really loved it. So Amy, how about you? What do you have to recommend? Yeah, well, since we've been on this place-based theme, I have a book that I was introduced to a few months ago. And, you know, Matt and I have just spent the last six years of our lives developing place-based themes around where we live and bringing people here. But I haven't spent a whole lot of time thinking about when I go to other places. And so I have a colleague, um, Hakualani Aku. She's at University of Utah. And then she and her co-editor, Kuna Gonzalez, wrote a travel book for Hawaii called Detours. But instead of being a classic travel book that's supposed to you know, guide you through your tropical paradise vacation, it's actually designed to help the tourist come to Hawaii with the people and the place in mind and understand all the different customs and then the issues that tourism has really brought to the islands and how to best support and behave so that you're honoring the location and the people who live there. So it's really a nice twist in the way it's written. She brings in lots of culture. She brings in lots of different perspective. It's a, it's a really nice twist and it's really made me rethink the way I travel and navigate. Well, sorry, I should say the way I will travel <laughs> yes. and navigate the world <laughs> once I'm able to do so again. Oh, it sounds amazing. Thank you so much. I can't I can't wait to check this out more. Having I've just have been there only one time, but I, even just the one memory that I have, it, it is so prevalent, you know, it would have been nice to have had a better sense of some of the issues. Thank you so much. Matt, how about you? Yeah, uh, a recommendation I would have is uh, the book that I've most recently read. It's called The Home Place. Um, and it's written by J. Drew Lanham, who's an author, obviously, and a poet and a, a wildlife biologist and a professor at, at Clemson University. So I'm a wildlife biologist, so it was very relevant to me. But it's a memoir um, about his life growing up in South Carolina. Um, and uh, the subtitle is um, Memoirs of a Color Man's Love Affair with Nature. So he, you know, as a black wildlife biologist, he's faced lots of institutional barriers and and personal confrontations over his life. And as a professor of wildlife over the last few months in particular, just increasingly aware of, um, you know, some of the challenges that our students face. And I love this book. I love lots of natural history writing. And I love this book because it really seamlessly, I always envy writing that kind of seamlessly combines very different ways of thinking. And, um, and his book really seamlessly combines personal testimony and describing the whippoorwills in the woods to describing his own personal story of, you know, going to a white church for the first time to his own personal story of trying to get into Clemson University and study wildlife biology and the challenges he's faced, sometimes bird watching and how he can navigate all that in kind of a, you know, build a quilt that covers all of that is really impressive. So it was a wonderful read. And he's coming to campus in a few weeks. Um, to talk to some of our students. So we're really excited about that too. So um, it was a fun and thought provoking and rewarding read. And I I really loved it. I am so overjoyed to be connected with both of you and just thankful to the California University system just, just for the opportunity to speak with you. As soon as I saw the, I think I got a sentence into hearing a little bit about your work. I thought, oh, such, I mean, such a thrill to get to talk to you, really. And, and you've just done such a wonderful job to help translate some of this to, I mean, because you're more interdisciplinary thinkers anyway, for the rest of us that aren't necessarily in STEM, that we can take a lot away from your work as well. Thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, thank you so much, Bonnie. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Yeah, absolutely, Bonnie. Thank you. It's a lot of fun. 
thanks once again to Amy Sproles and Matt Johnson for joining me on today's episode number 342 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast with a focus on place-based learning. I am leaving our interview completely energized and just so inspired by everything that you do. And I want to thank those of you who are listening. I hope that you will be able to take some nuggets away, whether they're small nuggets or big giant ones, and be able to start thinking about some things you might be able to do within your own context. If you head over to teachinginhighered.com slash 342, you can see the show notes for the episode. And I'd love to connect with you on Twitter if you're there. I am Bonnie with no E, B-O-N-N-I 208, and would love to hear what you're thinking about as far as place-based learning. See you next time.